This is a one and all media podcast. This is a one and all media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. And we're nearing the end of our series titled The Story, where we've been looking at the major events of the Bible. So far, we've looked at the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, going to the book of Exodus, Ruth, Isaiah, Daniel. The last few episodes, we've actually made it into the New Testament. Today, we're going to be looking at the book of John, and there's still a few more episodes to come because we have to make it all the way through the book of Revelation. Today, specifically, we're going to be looking at a story in John chapter 11, which looks at the death of Lazarus, who is one of Jesus' really close friends. Now, this passage reveals more about the character of God and a deeper understanding of the Holy Trinity. So let's lean in. Here's Pastor Jeff with today's message. Now, we're in John 11. My goodness, what a a weekend we're going to have here because... It's one thing for us Christians to claim that God exists. The world can handle that to a degree. At least 97% of the world can. That there is a God who made the stars, billions and billions, and beyond the stars, billions and billions of galaxies, and billions and billions of other stars. And Romans 1 and 2 talks about the creative genius of God and his handiwork, so that all men and women are without excuse, that the creation itself testifies to the indescribable nature and creative capacity of God. But it's one thing to say that God exists. It's another thing entirely to say that God has revealed himself through the man, Jesus Christ. That's a big leap. And the world, rightly so, struggles with that. Now, according to the Bible, in the Old Testament, people got confused about the nature, workings, and doings of God. So the New Testament is written so that you and I may know what God is truly like. The purpose of Jesus Christ is not only to redeem us, to bridge the gap that exists between you and I and God because of our sin, but one of the primary purposes of God or the scripture in the New Testament and of Jesus is that we would be able to look into the life of Jesus and learn what God is truly like, okay? So he's not only redeemer, he's the revealer. So as you watch the life of Jesus, you're supposed to say, wow, so that's what God is like. So when the lame are walking and the blind are seen and the paralytic picks up his bed and he walks, you're supposed to say, so that's what God is like. He's a God of compassion. When he's rigorous with the religious leaders, you're supposed to say, so that's what God is like. He doesn't like religion that much. When Jesus talks about relationship. You're supposed to say, no, that's what God wants. He wants a relationship, not rituals. That's what he wants from us. Now, John 11 is a narrative that we miss because we only use it at Easter usually. But the narrative is written in such a way to explain and reveal to us what God is like. 
But to really grasp it, you've got to understand what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. Now, let's, I'm going to take a chance here. Let's say that this is the God box and we're opening it up. And now we have God. Now, I know God's not Plato. I got that. But according to the scripture, God is three persons in one. So we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But they all come out of the God box. They're all made of the same essence. They're all God material. Now, you and I struggle with this because we say, how can all three people be one? And you hear all these examples that I think are lacking. And this is going to be lacking to some degree as well. But I hope to clear at least something up for you. The reason you struggle with this is because we are created in time and space. What does that mean? Well, how many of you really know what it means to say that God is eternal? How many of you really grasp the idea that God did not have a beginning? Now, you know that it's true, but you don't really know how it works, right? How can someone not have a beginning? Because if God did have a beginning, then the person who made God would be God. God is the only entity, stay with me, who is self-existing. That means he doesn't depend on anything outside of himself to exist. You and I depend on God for our existence. He gave us life. He breathed life into us. But God doesn't depend on anything because he is self-existing. Now, because God is self-existing, stay with me now, God cannot be limited by anything he himself creates. God created time and space. That's why you and I think in time and space, beginning and end. But if God is not limited by time and space, that means God can be everywhere at the same time, which means it's not that big a deal for God to be fully present in God the Father, fully present in God the Son, and fully present in God the Holy Spirit. They're all of the God stuff, and they come out of the God box, and only God can claim that. But God is able to not divide himself, but to be fully present in three entities, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons in one, the Godhead, the God stuff in the God box. Okay? Now, it's important for you to know that because each member is fully present and God is fully present in them. That's why Philippians says that Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. That is, he's like God looking in a mirror. He is God. Now, that's important because the role of the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, is to come to earth in the form of man. He's still God. He's of the God stuff. His essence is God. It never changes. But he humbles himself, and part of the reason is so that he can reveal to us what God is like, so that we can know. It's one thing to believe God exists. It's another thing to have a relationship with God, and you cannot have a relationship with somebody you don't know about. You can't have a relationship with a woman or a man unless you get to know the woman or man, and so God wants a relationship with us, so he wants us to know what he's really like. Now, here's why John 11 is so important. Because in John 11, God answers the question that most of us have about the nature and working of God, which is this. If the kingdom of God has come, why does my life stink? That's it. People say to me, Pastor Jeff, I get what you say about the kingdom of men. I understand that the kingdom of men is like a boulder and it comes down and it smashes and manipulates and coerces. And one kingdom of man comes after another kingdom of man and tries to slam us all into submission. You've told me the kingdom of God is not like that because the kingdom of men wants servants. The kingdom of God wants people who serve, but they do it out of love and desire, not out of force, not out of manipulation. 
So the kingdom of God is described by Jesus as a little seed. Rather than coming down and smashing everything, the seed goes on the inside and internally transforms you. But the seed is stronger than the rock because if you plant a seed and then you build concrete over it, the seed will break over time the concrete and spring forth life. It's still more powerful. It's just different. And why would you want the kingdom of God to be like the kingdoms of men? Because they come and go. They're temporary, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. You say, Pastor Jeff, I get the fact that a lot of people struggle with the kingdom of God because they still expect it to act like the kingdom of men. I get that. But Pastor Jeff, seriously, if the kingdom of God has come and the ideal has become real, why does my life stink? And why does God even know that the kingdom of men is trying to smash me? And does he even care? Is he detached? Does he, is he even aware and why doesn't he do something? And so John 11 is written to reveal the nature, the workings and doings of God when your life stinks. I'm in verse one. Jesus has left Jerusalem and he left because the people wanted to kill him and they wanted to kill him because he was doing miracles. Now, why on earth would you want to kill somebody that was doing miracles? Because if you're doing miracles, it means you're God and it means that you are speaking the truth. And they knew that if Jesus is speaking the truth, they got to change the way they're living. And they would rather kill him than to change the way they live their lives. Folks, that message hasn't changed for over 2,000 years. When I speak with people, when you speak with people, if someone is seeking the truth and are open to the truth of Christ, there is something that happens in their lives. But a lot of people, when they hear about Jesus, are afraid they're going to have to change their lives, even though their life stinks right now. They're afraid it's better that it stinks and they know it stinks than to take a risk on giving their lives to Jesus. It's not a lack of information, folks. It's not a lack of truth. It's a suppression of the will. If the will is wrong and it's bent against God, it doesn't matter how much information you give somebody about Jesus, they still want to kill him because they know if Jesus is truth, I got to change the way I'm living. And so Jesus takes the disciples and he leaves four kilometers away, takes the caravan, pick up the story in verse one. The Bible says, now there was a man named Lazarus and he was sick. Already the narrator gives us a heap of knowledge. Think about it. Every time you read of a healing in the New Testament, it starts by saying, and then there was this blind man and then there was this lame man and then there was this paralytic. It never gives a name, but not here. He gives us a name. Why? The writer's trying to tell us this isn't just somebody that Jesus happened to meet. This is a close friend of Jesus and his name is Lazarus. He's so close that when the sisters send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, they don't even use Lazarus's name. They just say in verse three, Lord, the one you love is ill. How would you like to be so close to Jesus? He doesn't even hear the name. The one you love. How would you like to be known as the one Jesus loves? And in verse five, in case we missed it, the narrator says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, which means that verse six makes no sense at all. The Bible says, so when he heard that is Jesus, that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. You got this? Jesus is four kilometers away from Bethany where Lazarus, Mary, Martha are. He hears the word that Lazarus is ill. His friend, his best mate, BFFs. He knows. I'm serious. Jesus spent a lot of time in and around Bethany. He probably went to Martha and Mary's house after church on Sunday for dinner. He knows them well. They're close friends. He hears that his friend is ill. And he doesn't make a move. And he waits. Now, from Mary Martha's standpoint, you can understand what the problem is because Mary Martha, they not only know Jesus' as friend, this is a powerful friend, man. The winds and waves obey him. He's the master. They know that 
The paralytic has picked up his bed and mat and walked. They know that he's fed 5,000 with just a little bit of food. So they know Jesus is powerful and Jesus is Lazarus' friend. So they're expecting as soon as Jesus is here, boom, drop it all. Come and help Lazarus. Have no fear, Jesus is here. Right? That's what they're expecting. The Bible says when he hears, verse 6, that he stays where he was two more days. And then verse 7 says, after two days, he said to the disciples, let's go back to Judea, which tells us he's willing to go. He just wanted to wait two days before he did go. And now you and I know the rest of the story. Why was he waiting two days? What was he waiting for? For Lazarus to die. What a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> if you're Mary and Martha, that's exactly what you're thinking. Jesus said, let's go back. Verse eight, but rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you there and yet you're going back. And then he gives them a cool word in verse nine and verse 10. It's a first century saying that means basically my time has not yet come. Light and dark. And Jesus said, I know it's light. When the darkness comes, it'll be trouble. What he's basically saying is, don't worry, they're not gonna kill us because my time has not yet come. So if I'm safe, you're safe, boys, let's go. And in verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. So the disciples say, well, dude, Jesus, man, if, if he's falling asleep, he'll get better, which means if he's falling asleep, he'll wake up. You do wake up, you know. And then in verse 14, Jesus frustrated, he tells them plainly, Lazarus is D-E-A-D, dead. And then he says in verse 15, but I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Now, if you're a disciple, you're thinking, believe what? believe that you're a bad friend. You're, you, I mean, you're, you love Mary, you love Martha and you love Lazarus and you hear that he's ill and you wait till he dies and then you go. And now you tell us you're glad that it happened so that we would believe, believe what? Believe that you're a really bad friend, man. You stink at this. No. Then Jesus in verse 16, then Thomas rather said to the rest of the disciples, okay, let's go that we may die with him. This is not courage. He's not saying, okay, if Jesus is going to go, let's go and stand by his side. And if the ship goes down, we'll go down with the captain. No, this is sarcasm. Thomas is saying, all right, let's go. He wants to die. Let's die with him. It's going to happen sooner or later. That's Thomas. Now stay with me. Okay, please. It's so important. Mary and Martha have sent word to Jesus. They know exactly how much time it takes for Jesus to receive the message that Lazarus their brother, his friend, his BFF, is near death. They know how long it would take Jesus to walk four kilometers, about 30 minutes, to come back and help their brother. They keep looking out the window, but the minutes keep ticking by, and they don't see Jesus. Lazarus is getting more and more sick. They look out the window, still no Jesus. Lazarus is getting close to death. The people in the town and the community have come, why hasn't Jesus come? He's just over the hill, and that's not a reference to his age. He's just over the horizon, four kilometers, 30 minutes, still no Jesus. Now Lazarus is almost ready to die, and they look out the window one more time. Still no Jesus. Hours and days go by, Lazarus dies. They have the funeral. They go out, the graveside service. They look over their shoulder, Mary and Martha, just wait, still not too late, still not too late, but still no Jesus. And then they put him in the tomb and they take the stone and they're about to roll it over the entryway. And Mary and Martha, just one more time, just one more time, it's not too late, still no Jesus. And they roll the stone over the tomb and Lazarus is gone. When Adriana died, and for those of you who are new and you don't know who that is, a 13-year-old girl died a couple years ago. She first came to us when she was nine and doctors had diagnosed her to have a disease that is very rare in young people. 
We prayed for her. This church got close to her. I remember sitting by her bedside over in San Dimas. And I remember praying this prayer to God. God, if every individual only gets one miracle in their lives, I would like to give mine to Adriana. And we kept looking over our shoulders. When's he coming? Because we knew he would. I mean, this is a little girl who wanted to live. I mean, take Mugabe out or something. I mean, take somebody else, but not Adriana. And we waited and we waited and we watched her die. Same thing with Izzy. Same thing with my dad. Same thing with my mom. Even when my mom died, the first painful, painful experience I had, even when we were at the graveside, I looked around my shoulder. Hey, Jesus, even now you could bring her right up out of that casket. You did it in the Bible. You could do it again. Still no Jesus. Now listen, listen. When Jesus finally shows up, and he does, he meets two people, Martha and Mary. And what he says to them is often overlooked because we just focus on the resurrection because this is an Easter passage. Man, we do it in justice because here's what happens. Martha meets Jesus out on the road and she says to Jesus, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what is she saying? Dude, where you been? I mean, you were just over the hill. I knew you were. We sent you a message and another one and another one. You could have walked over here in 30 minutes. If you'd been here, Lazarus would not have died. Where have you been? You call yourself a friend, right? That's kind of the insinuation. Jesus immediately cuts her off and says, hey, he will rise again, Martha. And Martha says, yeah, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I got that, but I'm going to miss him now. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? You know what he's saying? He's confronting Martha with propositional deductive truth. He's saying, Martha, who are you talking to? You know me. I mean, you're the sister of my BFF. You've had dinner with me. You know who I am. Christ, the King, the Messiah. I have come to set the captives free. You know my power. Why are you treating me like this? Martha, I own the keys to life and death. And if I want to raise Lazarus now, I can do it now. I didn't need to come when he was ill. I can do it three months later. Do you believe this, Martha? Now, when I first read this, I think, man, man, that's, that's harsh language. But Jesus gives her a direct, powerful, deductive reasoning statement. And he says, Martha, you want the truth. And I'm not going to say you can't handle the truth. You want the truth. Here it is. Now, stay with me. This is so important. Some of us are like Martha. Jesus knew that Martha needed propositional truth. There's about 10% of people who come to Christ after they've solved difficult questions. But the other 90% come to Christ because they know they're a sinner, they need grace, and then they figure the answers out through relationship over time. 90% of you came to Christ that way. You didn't have all the answers when you came, but you had enough answers that as you're a sinner separated by God and Jesus came to save you. But there's 10% of us, and I say us because I fall in this 10%, we've got to have some answers before we step over in faith. And the, the biggest question for me was, How can you get me to believe in this good, kind, merciful, loving God when there's so much crud in my life? Now, let me explain what... There only 10% of you are going to appreciate this, but it's worth it. Let me give you an example of how my mind and other minds in here, about 10% of you work. When I was on holiday or vacation with my in-laws, we went to Jekyll Island, Georgia. I've told the story before, so I'll, 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 I'll quicken it up. 
we were playing golf and my father-in-law got hit in the top of his head with a golf ball that traveled 250 yards away. Now, when you're bald and you get hit on the top of the head with a golf ball, it sounds like two bricks, high-pitched, smashing together. Now, when my father-in-law got hit with that ball, he immediately dropped to the the T area. On the ground, he's bleeding in his head, and he's, he's got a concussion, and he's dazed. Now, what do you think the first thing I did would be? No, no, no. Uh-uh. I'm going to find out who hit the golf ball. I... For me, the first move is probably, I need to know who did this and why. And you got to pay. Because I'm a good Christian, all about retribution. <laughs> right? It's amazing. Now, my brother-in-law, he's knelt down on the tea area praying and wiping the blood from my father-in-law's forehead and helping him up. What am I doing? I'm out finding who did it and why. Okay? See, that's my personality type. And, there, and there's 10% of you in the room the same way. And I know what this is like because in my crisis of faith in my early 20s, here's, here's the kind of thing that happens. I look and I look around the world and I see this nonsensical violence. And people like me tend to do this. We say, since I cannot see any point to all of this and there is no plan, there must not be any point to any of this and there must be no plan. But if you're an intellectual, and I'm not saying that I am, but there are moments I have If you're smart enough, and and most of us are, if you deduce enough and you continue on that train of thinking, sooner or later, what happened to me will happen to you. Someday you wake up and say, wait a minute. Whoa. Just because I can't see a purpose, point, and plan to this doesn't mean that there's one that does not exist. After all, I'm finite. There's a limitation. And if God is infinite, he knows a lot more about the world and the situation than I do. And you get to a point where you realize when God said to Job, Job, all I want you to do is admit your limitations. You're not God. You're not of the God stuff. You're human. You can only go so far. And all that we know is only that which God has chosen to reveal. And that's why I love that Evelyn Underhill quote that says, if we could completely understand God, he would be too small to be worshiped. And so you get to a point where you realize, wait a minute, if I knew everything, I'd be God. And I'm not and I can't. Therefore, just because I don't see a point or a plan or a purpose to something does not mean that one does not exist. Now, the other thing is that whole thing about, I realized as soon as I open up the door to evil, I open the door to God. Remember, once you assume evil, you assume good. Once you assume good and evil, you assume a moral law to define the areas of good and evil, and you assume that there's a moral law giver to give you a moral law to give you the definitive absolute categories of good and evil. Now, for 90% of you, you don't care anything I just said. But for 10% of you, you're tracking. You think, man, I appreciate that. What are you saying? I'm saying without God, there's no such thing as evil. Because without God, there's no absolute moral law to give you absolute definitive categories of good and evil. Evil can't exist unless there's a God. What do you mean? Well, anytime we ask the question of pain, suffering, and evil in our lives or anybody else's, we assume that each individual has intrinsic worth and value. That's why we're upset when people hurt or are wounded. We assume they have intrinsic worth and value and that all life is sacred. But life is not sacred. It does not have intrinsic worth and value unless there's a God. Because without God, we're all a result of time plus matter plus chance. And when something bad happens to you, we should all say, bad luck, sorry for you. But I wish you would hurry up and die so that gene pool can be strengthened. Because nature is red in tooth and claw. And it's brutal. So as soon as you open the door to evil... 
As soon as you open the door to pain and suffering and you say, I am sad because I believe this individual has intrinsic worth, intrinsic value, that life is sacred, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Once you're sad because somebody hurts, you're assuming God exists. You are undermining your own mind. You're giving it away down deep inside. You can say with your mouth, there is no God, but you won't live like that. You'll live as though he exists every time you get sad that evil and pain and suffering occurs in our world. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. One of the reasons, one of the main avenues through which God ministers to us during our time of difficulty is to send us to help each other, to remind people of truth and tears. But if somebody gives you truth and they don't weep with you, you don't want to hear it. And if somebody weeps with you without giving you truth, you feel no better when they leave. You need both. And only Jesus gives that. Now, if that was the end of the sermon, it'd kind of be anticlimactic, but it's not. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.